Radio Krikon. Hi there and welcome to episode 2 of Get Your Creek On, a podcast about Jonathan Creek. Thank you for dialing in and a huge thanks to everyone who has checked out episode 1. If you haven't and you've come straight here to episode 2, well, you're more than welcome, but I really don't understand how you can live your life like that. Each episode of this podcast reviews and analyses an episode of Jonathan Creek, taking them in chronological order, and today we land on Series 1, Episode 2, Jack in the Box. After a summary of the story, we analyse it and then look at some guest stars, plot holes and how good a mystery it actually was. There's then some location information coming your way, before we delve into another Creek connection, before discovering what else was happening in the world on the day the episode aired. It's highly recommended you watch the TV episode before listening to this pod episode, just so that you get all the references and can really appreciate all the minutiae of this top quality content. If you haven't watched any Jonathan Creek before, all I can say really is that uh, you need to get the finger out What's wrong with you? You you found the time to binge watch Good Girls, so come on. Jack in the Box aired on BBC One on Saturday, May 17th, 1997 at 8.10pm, just after the National Lottery. So let's kick off with a synopsis of the episode. Friendly Australian man, do the honours, will you please? Episode Synopsis Taking umbrage at an advert for Tonga Bananas in which his talents haven't been fully utilised, comedy legend Jack Holiday hits the drink hard, pouring out a big glass of Grant's whiskey with his arthritic old hands. Other whiskies are available and most of them are much better. His day goes from bad to worse when his wife Kirsten arrives home, driven by their chauffeur Oliver, who is part Thunderbird's marionette. Kirsten tells Jack to his horror that the chap who murdered his first wife is being released from prison. The no longer condemned man, Alan Rokesmith, holds a press conference at which he and his sister angrily rail against the tabloid media. Maddie has helped Rokesmith secure his freedom, and she also berates the assembled hacks before watching with dismay as Rokesmith's sister tears up a tasty cheque the three of them had been offered. Rokesmith is ferried home, where he emotionally reunites with his 170-year-old mother and talks about his intention to drink in the freedom by going on a fishing trip to Wales. Later, at the holiday home, get it, Kirsten and chauffeur Oliver can't find Jack. They look everywhere and end up calling the police. The sniffer dog picks up a scent at the entrance to an underground bomb shelter, and the door is crowbarred open. Down the stairs, a second metal door is seared open by a guy who does whatever that thing is that is like the opposite of welding, and inside the bunker, Jack Holliday's blood-stained body is found, a gun in his hand. A policeman says that the only possible explanation here is that Jack shot himself, but Kirsten exclaims, that it simply isn't possible because his seized-up hand could not have pulled the trigger. However, 
How could someone else have done it and then escaped from the hermetically sealed underground chamber? Maddie calls Jonathan and takes him for a spin down to the coast. He takes this at face value but, en route, is annoyed to realise that she is drawing him into another of her mysteries. She tells him the story of Rokesmith's incarceration. A decade earlier, he was caught strangling Jack Holliday's wife in an alleyway. He claimed to have come across her corpse and merely tried to remove the rope from round her neck. However, his pleas of innocence cut no ice and he was convicted of murder. Kirsten Holliday is now blaming Maddie for Jack's death because she helped get Rokesmith released. Maddie wants to check out the bunker to confirm that Jack must have committed suicide, but obviously Kirsten will not welcome her there. Hence, Jonathan's being brought along to do the investigating. He's welcomed in and Kirsten tells him all about Jack's life. Apparently he met his first wife Jennifer when she was only seven years old and he proposed to her. He was about fucking 40 at the time. They married 15 years later when she was, you know, an adult. After Jennifer's murder, Kirsten and Jack got closer and eventually they married. Bad news then comes through from Wales. Rokesmith's fishing boat has been found wrecked on rocks and he is presumed dead. His sister passes on a box of his prison letters to Maddie to help her write up his story. A pile to and from a confectionery firm catches her attention. Maddie and Jonathan go for a walk along the coast, speculating and hypothesising. Jonathan is convinced that Jack was murdered but can't figure out who did it or how. He thinks someone waited to kill Jack after Rokesmith was released so that he would be accused and then disposed of Rokesmith so that he couldn't claim his innocence or provide an alibi. Getting caught in the rain and having lost the car key, Maddie and Jonathan check into a local hotel for the night. With little else to do, they inspect the letters Rokesmith sent to the confectioners and after steaming off the stamps, Jonathan finds cryptic hidden messages underneath. The next morning Jonathan finds a melon on his pillow with a knife in it. A warning perhaps. He then has a sudden realisation after glancing at a toilet. That happens to me sometimes. After they head back to the holiday home, Maddie and Jonathan have figured it all out. Kirsten isn't pleased to see Maddie but allows the pair of them back into the shelter. We see a flashback to a gun-wielding assailant leading Jack down there and shooting him before leaving the gun in his hand to suggest suicide. Someone who didn't know about the arthritis because he'd been away for so long. Alan Rokesmith. Maddie admits that she was wrong about him. It turns out that Jack paid to have his wife Jennifer killed all those years ago and then paid off witnesses. The hidden messages under the stamps were from Jack to Rokesmith in prison, telling him to keep his mouth shut and vowing to keep on giving him money if he did so. Kirsten Holiday believes none of this, but Aloysius Nosy Parker, aka Chauffeur Oliver, reveals that Jack had divulged all of it to him one night when drunk. After shooting Jack, Rokesmith had dismantled the end wall in the bunker and then rebuilt it a few feet in the way, leaving a hollow area behind. He took a bunch of pills and then sealed himself behind the wall to die. He wanted to do this in a way where his mother and sister wouldn't find out the truth, so he faked the trip to Wales and the boat accident. 
Oliver drills a hole into the wall and we see Rokesmith's lifeless corpse in there. Well, obviously it was lifeless, that's um, literally what a corpse is. We end the episode back on the clifftop, with Jonathan trying to prove that it's impossible to slip on a banana skin. Fortunately for him, he accidentally treads and skids in dog shit instead. Episode Analysis Poor old Jack. Not only were his final years beset by crippling arthritis, but he ended up murdered. Although some might say that he got his just desserts for being a pedo. Now, there are only so many feasible solutions to a locked room mystery, and I thought this story was a really interesting take on that. Everyone thought someone had somehow escaped from the room, but actually he'd just sort of sealed himself away behind the wall. Quite a clever solution, I thought. I wasn't really sure why Rokesmith did all of that. Uh, he could have just killed Jack in the house, for example. It could have still looked like suicide. And also, surely Rokesmith would have at least tried to run away and create a new life for himself rather than committing suicide. But I guess the guilt from what had happened years before was just too strong. Unlike The Wrestler's Tomb, where the central question was who did this, the episode centred around an actual impossible crime, how could someone escape from a locked room, and the question of who did it almost became secondary at points. I think overall this created a greater sense of intrigue and mystery to the story. On the whole, there was some really good work done in building and developing the relationship between Jonathan and Maddie. I really, really enjoyed the scenes between them in the car in particular. They've already become like a bickering old couple and we're only on episode 2. To begin with, there was the squabbling about Rokesmith's wrongful conviction and Jack's death, which Jonathan was brilliantly harsh about. And then there was the relish with which he read the haranguing letter from Kirsten to Maddie. As they drove home, it was great how edgy Maddie using the phone whilst driving made him, and yet she ended up seeing that he made her nervous because of how twitchy he got. It was just really strong writing, and the performances from both of them were just excellent. The episode's outstanding gag, in my opinion, was a visual one, the note under the melon left on Jonathan's pillow. Two words, the second one off and the first one ending CK, then revealed to in fact be back off. John Bluthall played Jack Holiday. he was most well known for his role in The Vicar of Dibley. Kirsten was played by Maureen O'Brien, who's also written a series of mystery novels. And Oliver the Chauffeur was played by Bernard Kay, who has been dead since 2014 and was a Pisces. One or two questions did arise. How come the mortar on the rebuilt bricks was so neat and smooth? I'm not sure Rokesmith could really have achieved that. And secondly, I wasn't really convinced about the whole stamps coming cleanly off the envelopes thing. Surely all the glue and whatnot would have ripped and torn the paper and made the writing hard to read. These are just minor quibbles though. Let's move things along as we head towards... The Celebration of Location Information Station. For this episode, we have a double dose of location information, starting off with the cliffside house at which Jack Holiday lived until he was shot dead. 
It's a house called Rinsey Head, set on a private 27-acre estate in Cornwall, on the south coast of England. Eight bedrooms and 3.5 bathrooms. I think a half bathroom is where there's a toilet but no actual bath. The exciting news is that you can go and stay in this house if you wish. It's listed on Airbnb, rated 5 stars out of 5 from 13 reviews, one of which was submitted by Tina, who referred to it as one in a million. Now, that sounds impressive, but do bear in mind there are 29 million homes in the UK, meaning that by her logic there's at least 28 which are just like this, and therefore it's maybe not all that special. The host is a verified superhost, so you can certainly book with confidence, but beware, house rules include no smoking and no parties, so it would certainly be of no use to a hedonistic party dude like me. At the height of summer, it's £3,500 per week. Not cheap, and even uh, even in deepest, darkest February, it's 1300 a week. There's no mention of Jonathan Creek in the listing. I think they could add several hundred pounds a week at least to those rates if they added it in somewhere. Now, the external entrance to the bunker was filmed using an existing garage next to the house, although the internal scenes in the bunker itself were filmed on a specially made set in Pinewood Studios. The house now boasts, and I quote, a newly built garage. And I don't know if that means the old one's gone or not. Uh, You probably want to phone up and confirm this before booking anything on Airbnb. The last thing you want is to turn up there having spent thousands of pounds only to find the garage door featuring in Jonathan Creek no longer exists. That would make it a completely wasted trip. Now, the second location this week is the hotel in which Jonathan and Maddie stayed. It's called The Volunteer and is near Dorking in Surrey. It's very much still running these days, so you can visit, but it does appear that it's actually just a pub rather than a hotel. I don't know if they did maybe bed and breakfast quarter of a century ago, but if they didn't, it's just a fine example, I think, of the magic of TV, where a building masquerades as a very slightly different type of building. Incredible. They describe their menu as British slash Mediterranean pub grub, which presumably is a fancy way of saying they sell spaghetti bolognese, I guess. Uh, I'm sure if you say, I hope there's no melons with knives in them round here, (laughs) the staff will uh, totally get the reference and they'll probably give you a discount for being cool. Creek Connections Much as we enjoy getting entwined in a Jonathan Creek mystery and laughing at the comedic moments, it has to be remembered that there's often a far deeper meaning to the episode. These may pass a mere layman by, but for sophisticated people like you and I, astonishment is never far from reach. At 32 minutes 45 seconds, Jonathan is in the kitchen of his windmill cooking dinner. On the wall above the oven is a framed painting of a white rabbit. The song White Rabbit is a well-known track by 60s rock group Jefferson Airplane and was written by singer Grace Slick. She was the lead vocalist on the famous song We Built This City 
brackets on rock and roll, close brackets, which was all about San Francisco. San Francisco is home to the corporate headquarters of Levi Strauss & Co, famous for their denim jeans. Denim originated in the southern French city of Nîmes, which is referred to by many as the most Roman city outside Italy and is known for its Roman architecture. One of the most famous sites is a first century aqueduct known as the Pont du Gard, or North Bridge, which stands almost 50 metres high and crosses the River Gardon. In 1928, the following was written about the bridge. A man suffering from the unrest of time might do worse than camp out for three days, fishing and bathing under the shadow of the Pont du Gard. Those are the words of French writer and historian Hilaire Belloc. Belloc spent most of his life in England, where he had a spell as an MP, and among his many writings was the popular Cautionary Tales for Children, which included catchily titled stories such as Matilda, who told lies and was burned to death, and Jim, who ran away from his nurse and was eaten by a lion. Belloc lived mainly in West Sussex, and from 1906 until his death in 1953, owned a windmill in Shipley called the King's Mill. That is the very same windmill at which Jonathan Creek was filmed, and where he was cooking that mushroom and cheese thing as the White Rabbit looked on in this very episode. Now, come on. That isn't just a fluke. That isn't just chance. There's something almost spiritual at work here. As Victor Meldrew might exclaim, What in the name of buggery? Another Creek Connection, next time. Catch your Creek on. In this last segment, we're going to whip open the history books to see what else was happening on Saturday, 17th of May, 1997. It was a big day for musical birthdays. Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age turned 24. Paul Diano, one of the early singers in Iron Maiden, was 39. And Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails was 32. That's a fairly heavy metal-focused list, so, for balance, Enya turned 36. It was the 30th anniversary of the death of George Forbes, 22nd Prime Minister of New Zealand, and to pay our respects to him there, we're going to now have 15 minutes silence. No, I'm joking. In Excess played live on the National Lottery just before Jonathan Creek came on BBC One. The numbers were 2, 9, 13, 18, 27, 48, and the bonus ball was 24. Jackpot 6.6 million. Parliamentary elections took place in Cameroon, and Sylvester Stallone got married in London to Jennifer Flavin, and they remain married to this day, so congratulations. And finally, I found myself flicking through the heart to heart column in the Liverpool Echo. Obviously, internet dating has largely done away with contact columns like this, 
but I spent far too long nevertheless reading through these adverts and having a good laugh. Stylish, sensual, small, shapely, serious, secure smasher seeks handsome, hunky, honourable, hard-working he-man aged 39 to 44. Lovely alliteration there, but she's also needing someone who is intelligent, solvent, with a good sense of humour and a full head of hair, so if that's you, why not call Box 75747? Are you in a stale marriage? Two attractive friends in the same position, one thirty-ish, one forty-ish, would like to meet two males in a similar situation, five foot nine plus with own hair and teeth. They were from Birmingham. Um, quite a few of these ads seem to specify that someone must have their own hair and teeth, which I gather is quite a common thing. It's almost a joke amongst older people seeking love, but most of these folks are pretty young. Attractive blonde, slim female seeks tall, attractive working male with own hair and teeth. 32 to 37. Now, at that age, if you're having to specify own teeth, how bad was Liverpool in 1997? My favourite ad though came from this guy who wrote, Tall, dark and attractive man who rang blonde, 22-year-old female on box 75794. Unfortunately, your contact number was erased. Please contact my new box number. Now, come on mate, uh, let's face the facts here. Her number was not erased accidentally, okay? She bends you off. That was the old school version of ghosting, I think, just deleting your number. I think it's called ghosting. Uh, obviously, I've never experienced anything like that. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Get Your Creek On. If you feel so compelled, you can contact the show. The email address is getyourcreekon at gmail.com. And against my better judgment, there's now also a Twitter handle, that's at creekget. So feel free to follow, share, engage, and all of that carry on. If you'd like to help support the show, the best ways in which you can do so are to tell your friends about it, or to leave a review wherever your podcast provider allows you to do so. As I understand it, the more reviews, the better the impact on the algorithms and stuff like that, and the further up the search results it appears, and the more people can find it, and so on and so on. Now, if you have too much money and not enough things to spend it on, then you can help the show get even more niche and the research even deeper by buying me a proverbial coffee. Just head to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash get your creek on. I promise that none of the funds will be frittered away on drugs or sports cars or prostitutes or anything dodgy at all. That's it for today. Next up will be Series 1, Episode 3, The Reconstituted Corpse, which is undoubtedly one of the very best episodes of Creek. It involves uh, someone dying inside a wardrobe, so get that watched or rewatched, and we'll get right in about it next time. Until then, thanks again for listening. I'm Toby, and I will see you later. Bye now!